Welcome to the Curiosity Key Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Wyman, and I'm a B2B business development strategist, LinkedIn trainer, and curious thinking advocate. So what is curious thinking? Well, I believe that when you approach your business, your career, your sales, your marketing, and pretty much anything you could possibly think of, and by being more curious about what's going on around you, you'll enjoy what you're doing more, engage more with others, learn more, and be able to do more. Now, it's not just about asking more questions either. It's about asking the right questions that will unlock all of the potential opportunities around you. And this podcast aims to help you learn from other curious thinkers about how you could grow your business, get your idea off the ground, pioneer change and do more. Now, this week's guest is Richard Glynn Jones. Richard works for, well, he is the CEO of DTSI Group, and he works with lots of different technology providers to ensure that his customers get the right solution for them. Now, he has an absolutely fascinating background and has worked in the aerospace industry for over 23 years. Now, in my previous job, I came across a new technology called VIDAR, and specifically for search and rescue. Now, this technology was absolutely fascinating just because it was saving lives and it was enabling search and rescue crews to just do everything so much faster. And, you know, being quite new to this technology, there is so much more to learn from it. I thought it was too good an opportunity to miss not to get Richard onto this podcast to talk a little bit more about the technology and how he's working with his customers to make sure that they have the right solution, some of which can take up to six years to sort out. So he has a lot of information to share, lots of exciting things to learn and lots of lessons to be gained as well. So without waffling too much, I'm going to leave it over to Richard and I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I do. Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Curiosity Podcast. I'm joined by Richard Glenn-Jones of DTSI Group. So welcome, Richard, and thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you, Charlie. It's good to be here today. Brilliant. So I um, met Richard, uh, weirdly, after I left the last company that I was working with. Um, And uh, we were both involved in a similar type of technology in that the company I was working with was trying to integrate VIDAR um, on sort of um, high high payload drones. And then when I started working for myself, I came across Richard who also works with VIDAR. So I thought the best thing to do is to start this podcast interview with talking a little bit about what is VIDAR in the first place and how did you get involved with it? So VIDAR is basically, it's a wide area maritime surveillance system that can go on to, as you say, high payload drones uh, and helicopters, aircraft, etc. cetera. Um, it's, a, it's an autonomous system. So it uses artificial intelligence to find objects on the surface of the ocean and then tell an operator where something is. And um, I, I, I came to find out about VIDAR about three just over three years ago when um i was just leaving my previous company and i'd done some work with sentient vision systems in australia as a customer of theirs and when i left i contacted them and said i like what you do um there's some opportunities around and they asked if i could help out with some of the work that they were doing and vidar came up as one of the products and having known what they were previously doing with moving target indication from video and also finding objects on the surface of the ocean with the previous product, I realized that this is something that was of huge interest to me. And for me, I like working with cutting edge technology. It's the new stuff that excites me. It's finding that out. 
finding what it does, and then being able to look at how that can be integrated into systems and then delivered to the customer. And when they explained VIDAR and went through what it did, my immediate reaction was one that I, I could see how this product could be something that could save lives. So from that, I just I jumped at the chance to work with it. And yeah, for, for the last three years, I've been working, supporting Sentient and trying to get this product into the market. And it's, it's operational now in a number of places and it's doing it's doing really well and developing fantastically. And it is something that as a solution, I see so many different ways of it being used on so many different platforms. And yeah, it's, it's something that excites me to be working on. So before we talk about the different applications that you can use um, on it, pretty much everybody I speak to has never heard of VIDAR before. And also because I come from a LIDAR background, <laughs> um, when I first heard about VIDAR, I was like, oh, no, surely you've got it wrong. It's it's LIDAR, not VIDAR, what you're talking about. Um, uh, so I'm guessing a lot of our listeners will have uh, no idea what VIDAR is. So what does VIDAR actually stand for? And uh, can you explain kind of like in simple, sort of like really, really simple terms, um, how it works? So. VIDAR stands for visual detection and ranging. So if you think of traditionally, you have on a lot of aircraft, you get a radar, which is radio detection and waving. So it will send out um, send out a signal that is then reflected back in order to be able to find where objects are on the surface of the ocean or where, where objects are in space. What VIDAR will do is it uses a series of high definition cameras to basically look at the ocean and stare at the ocean. And then as a set of algorithms behind that, that then find where the objects are. And then it will tell you as an operator, we're using a map. It will say on a map, there is something at this location here. It will then give you a little thumbnail image to show you what it is that it's detected. So if you're a sensor operator on an aircraft or for a drone, you can sit there and the system will tell you where objects are. Where normally, say for search and rescue, for example, you have somebody looking out of a window, hopefully trying to find somebody, or you have somebody who's got a camera turret on the bottom of the helicopter or the aircraft, that they're moving that around all the time, trying to find something on the surface of the ocean. Where what VIDAR does is it looks out 180 degrees over a wide area, trying to find an object and it will then tell you where it is. So it takes the guesswork out of finding things. It takes the luck out of finding things. Having spoken to numerous search and rescue operators, I say, how do you find people? And they say, mostly luck. There's technology that tries to help, but doesn't help as much as they want it to, where the VIDAR system will actually tell you where it is and tell you with a high level of confidence where something is on the surface. Do you have any statistics around um, the success rate of VIDAR? Because that was the application that I was uh, particularly involved in, which was search and rescue. And I can't for the life of me remember what it was, but I remember that you know when you use this technology, your success rate for finding people, and um, not, well, not just finding people, but also being able to save people that have been lost at sea um, was much, much great, like significantly greater. Uh, do, yeah. you, do you know what that is? Yeah, sure. So um, through finding people in the water. So if I, typically, if you're looking at a search and rescue helicopter, trying to find someone in the water, you'll be flying 
search pattern, sort of creeping ladder search pattern moving up and down, looking at over the water. And they have about a 70, 75% confidence level that they have seen everything there is in that area. With VIDAR, that's at 96% confidence level of finding an object in the water. But also with a search and rescue helicopter, for example, they would fly their search pattern at about 500, 800 feet, and they would have to go up and down the ladder with a separation between each of the runs of about 0.1 or 0.2 nautical miles. Where with VIDAR from the same altitude, you're looking right the way across about three nautical miles. So to cover, <clears throat> if someone's lost at sea and has a beacon, they typically will do a two mile by two mile search box that you have to go and look in. At the moment, it takes about half an hour to cover that box flying a search pattern. With VIDAR on a platform, you can cover that in about one minute and you can fly in and clear that whole area. So there's been instances where people have gone missing and they fly an area and they say, we can't find them. But they're only 75% confident that they've actually cleared that area properly. So what they then have to do is go back and revisit. So you're spending more time in the air, spending more cost on fuel, more cost for putting the search and rescue guys' lives in danger by being out in various conditions. Whereas if you can fly that area with a 96% confidence, clear that in one hit and say, no, nothing there, move on to the next one, you'll find people so much quicker than you can at the moment. So this, I mean, this to me was a no brainer. And, you know, coming into the industry um, with sort of like my kind of fresh eyes and my my ignorant attitude, uh, I was like, this is a no brainer. Why is everybody not using it? So before we talk about the other applications of this technology, what barriers do you come across in terms of actually getting this technology in the hands of people that that need it? So the main things we're finding is that it's um, it's the fact that you need to put this technology onto a very costly asset like a helicopter or an aircraft or a you know a sizable drone. Um, and to get anything into that, you see operators see it and they go, yes, we'd really want this. But then you've got to go into the, um, the budget cycles of typically it's governments that run these kind of things. So you've got to move, you've got to get the technology requirements written, put into the next phase of any tender that they're putting out to then have the budget to be able to then buy it, to then integrate it, to then operate it. So something that, I mean, I, I worked in procurement for 20 odd years and with that, it's always been a case of you, the end user sees it, they understand it, and they go, I want this. They then have to get that requirement pushed to the people who write the actual requirements. They then put in what they see as what's needed. And because most of the time you can't come in and say, well, I want VIDAR. What they're saying is, I want VIDAR. What they have to write in the documents is, I want something that does this, this, and this, and this, which kind of fits what VIDAR can do. Then you've got to get that into what the tender's going to be. Then you've got to get the tender written and put out. So one of the focuses I've, I'm looking at is the, uh, the UK SAR 2G um, uh, tender that's due out next year, which is for the next generation of search and rescue platforms in the UK. But that's for a contract that's going to come out in 2023. Uh, so we're 
looking at how to get the VIDAR seen and understood and influencing requirements at the moment and have been for the last couple of years before a tender next year for a contract in 2023 to then be delivered after that. So it's a huge timescale that you have to work to on all of these things. Last week at the Paris Air Show, um, Sentient, we announced that there is uh, the Indonesian Ministry of Defence have uh, will be putting four VIDAR systems onto some of their new multi-role aircraft. But for that, you know, it's been a long time trying to push through to get to that point. But then delivery of these platforms isn't happening until 2024. So by the time they get it, it's it's you know you're looking at six years from initial contact to getting something deployed. It's not something that's uh, often put out straight away. Working with companies who have like a, an owner of a company who funds the whole thing themselves says, I've got surveillance aircraft, therefore this would be useful. For them, it's much easier. They just say, yep, I want it. They can just sign the paperwork and off they go. But um, a lot of the time when you're specifically focusing on some of the search and rescue stuff, it fits in with government agency. So therefore, you're stuck in that cycle that you have to make sure you get into at the right time. So it sounds like you're kind of managing lots of different people's expectations whilst also juggling lots of different timeframes, budget expectations and, and all sorts of craziness. So how do you um, how do you keep positive uh, about the the deals that you're working on and uh, kind of see it in the long term? Because obviously you're, you're kind of playing a very long game if you're looking at a six year sales cycle for something. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. <clears throat> and it's knowing that it's, uh, you know, as I said, I've worked in this kind of environment for years. So it's knowing that it takes time. And where I was working for before, we worked on a contract that took 13 years to get. And, um, and that was just to get the contract. Then you had to do the delivery afterwards. But um, it's, it's knowing, it's having faith in the technology and knowing what that technology can do. Uh, having faith in the customer that they will be putting that technology in place. and. It's which when you meet different people uh, during the process and you see, you, you kind of get that hallelujah moment when you see them click, when they suddenly, they're like, they see you come in and see you want to start talking about technology. And sometimes you get the feeling that you're walking in, they're looking at you going, salesperson, uh, and they switch off. But I find that the engagement with finding out what the problem is how you can help them with that problem and then working through with them that engages them they then start having that conversation with you they open up more and you can see them suddenly realize that you're not someone who's just coming in to try and get money out of them you're someone who's coming in because what you believe is that you can help what they're doing and i i the kick i get out of doing business is seeing how it helps other people and seeing how technology helps other people and deliver what they need to do and if it's something like vidar that for some customers is something that will go and save lives then all the better yeah and it's, it seems to be a common theme uh, that we're talking about with uh, people that i interview on this podcast uh, which is around that you know yes the technology is exciting yes the technology is brilliant but at the end of the day the technology is there to solve a problem you must first understand the problem in which you're going to solve um and i think there are a lot of technology companies that miss the point around that um so it's really nice to hear you say that that's what your driving force is um so because you're dealing with lots of 
different technology providers uh, to come up with that solution for the end client. How do you, um, I guess, like we've, we've spoken about this in the past, how do you manage your frustrations with um, the, the marketing or lack of marketing um, from highly driven technolo- technology companies that don't see the value in marketing so much? Um, I suppose the, the way I deal with it is that I then start to develop some of the marketing stuff myself um, and try and drive it from that side. Uh, if you have companies that aren't engaged with actually getting getting that out there, because a lot of the time the first thing people see is your marketing material. And from that, they the first impression is professional or not professional. And if they think you're not that professional, they then disengage straight away. Hmm. If they see it and they go, I like the look and feel of this, I understand what you're trying to do, then they want to engage with you more. So, and it's trying to make sure that the, the right message is in the right document. So a lot of times I see people coming up with a generic, here's a product, it does something. When, what, so, you know, I can come up with something, say for Vidar, for example, I could come up with something that says, here's something that's focused on search and rescue and give it to a police force who want to try and find um, uh, people smuggling. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's targeting your marketing, understanding what that should do. And it's, you've got to have that link between people who do business development activity and people who do marketing activity so that they create the right, the right materials for the right customers. And I don't think it's one size fits all, but, you know, I, I, I spend quite a bit of time trying to make sure that what is going to go to the customer first is something that I feel proud of and that the company would feel proud of. And um, yeah, I, for me, I, in, in the past, I, when, I, when I was doing some engineering work years ago, I thought, you know, the marketing, marketing's marketing. But then now being highly involved with that side of things, to me, marketing is one of the absolute key things that you've got to get right as a business. And um, yeah, I suppose I look at it and if people, if I don't see the right marketing materials, I'll then look at how I can support that and provide information to whoever I'm dealing with to say, here's something that you can assist with the marketing that you're doing. Yeah. And it's great advice uh, for for anybody listening, which is all around, you know, sort of really understanding who you're marketing to uh, and not trying to come up with a one size fits all message or data sheet or um, a document that you send out. Uh, I know that I learned this the hard way uh, when I first got into uh, marketing, um, which was, you know, we were targeting the geospatial sector. But as you know, that there are lots of different aspects of the geospatial sector so if you take kind of like you know uh, let's say archaeologists versus uh, mining engineers you can't send out the same bit of marketing to yeah. both types of customer because they're just going to completely disengage with what it is that you're telling them whereas if you kind of customize it or tweak it slightly for the application then that you're getting a lot more more from it so it's really nice to hear you uh, say that and hopefully people listening will be like okay light bulb <laughs> this is what i need to do um so that, that brings me on to uh, the next question, which is, because uh, we've touched upon this before, um, so search and rescue obviously is a real key application of BIDAR technology, but what else can you use it for? So <laughs> the main areas that VIDAR is being used in at the moment, uh, one of the key ones is the fact that because VIDAR doesn't emit anything, it means it's undetectable. So it's just like basically having some you know, video cameras looking at things. You can't tell if someone's filming you with a video camera, nothing's being emitted. So it's a passive system, so nothing detects it. And 
we've uh, managed to get a number of systems, uh, quite a lot of systems now operational with the US Coast Guard. And one of the key applications that they've been using it for is counter-narcotic operations. So detecting drug smuggling boats coming up from South America. Whereas they, these uh, people trying to smuggle the drugs have got very, have got a lot of money and they put radar detection systems onto their boats. Um, they try and, they've got some blue tarpaulin that if they think they've been seen, they stop the boat, pull the tarpaulin over the top and uh, pretend that they're a piece of water. But BIDAR can detect that that's not normal water, therefore there's something there. They can't detect that VIDAR's around because their radar detection's useless. So um, I've been flying around finding some of these drug runner boats about 17 miles away. And last year, was, yeah, last year, uh, the US Coast Guard managed to get was it the second largest drug haul uh, in its history. Wow. And uh, during those operations, they were flying drones with VIDAR on to be able to actually do these detections. And as I said, the the smugglers have absolutely no idea they've been seen. Um, so from a passive sense and doing covert operations, then yeah, your counter uh, narcotics operations, uh, also illegal fishery detection, illegal fishing detection. So being able to go out and fly around and find, and find out where boats are that shouldn't be where they are. So a lot of, uh, well, all boats uh, larger than a certain size have to have an AIS beacon on there. Uh, so what that does is that tells you, tells anyone who's got an AIS detector where that boat is, and it will tell you where the boat is, what the boat is, and from the database you can see a picture of it and understand all of that. So if you fly out with VIDAR and you link that with the AIS system, then you'll, say, get 10 detections coming up in a certain area, and if nine of them have got beacons, you go, well, those nine, I know who they are, I know what they are, that's fine, but they're number 10 boat there, no beacon. So who are you? What are you doing? And that's the one you're going to investigate first. So it can cut the amount of time you spend trying to find these boats drastically by being able to tell you almost straight away what it is you're trying to look for. Um, and also for uh, some of the, like the people smuggling operations over the Mediterranean, you know, it'd be key to operate in that kind of environment to be able to passively detect systems um, at certain stages. So you've kind of got a lot of the boats, they'll bring the boat will come out with another boat next to it. And then when you get, when they get to a certain point, they'll transfer people that they're trying to smuggle from one boat to the other one. So if you want to passively detect them beforehand, then once they're on there, it doesn't matter if you can go out as active as you want and you can be, you, know, you can be found. But it's that, being able to to do covert operations is one of the key things with VIDAR. Also, if you look for a, a Navy, for example, just force protection, being able to fly around and detect objects on the surface. So VIDAR has an advantage where it will operate uh, up to sea state six, so really bad conditions and large waves and white caps. It will still find objects on the ocean, where radar will struggle in that kind of condition. Also. The um, uh, a radar will struggle with like wooden boats, fiberglass boats. So if you've got people who are coming in, you know, with a small fiberglass boat laden with explosives at high speed towards your platform, radar potentially will have difficulty finding that. Where VIDAR will be able to see that and identify it 
to an operator who can then pre-warn you that there is something that's that's happening um, during an exercise. So the Royal Navy had an exercise at the end of 2016 called Unmanned Warrior up in Scotland, where a whole load of uh, drones and UAVs were flying around, um, trying to see how they work in a, in a naval environment. And one of the one of the missions that happened there was that they had two fast attack craft that were coming in towards a NATO convoy of ships. Um, and they said, you know, we've got to detect these detect these boats. How quickly can we detect the threat that's coming in? And Vidar on the um, on the UAV managed to pick them up 45 minutes before they actually got to the NATO vessels. Wow. So if you pick them up that far in advance, it means you've got a hell of an opportunity to actually get yourself ready to counteract the threat that's coming towards you. Mm. Whereas if you're trying to look at something with a radar that's not necessarily going to pick up that kind of boat, um, or you're just relying on you know a drone flying around with a camera that's got a really narrow field of view, hoping that it's going to find something, then you'll struggle. But with BIDAR on there, the fact it managed to do that so quickly was, it was a huge benefit to the operations. So does, is FIDAR replacing radar, or is it something that you can use in conjunction with? So it depends on your platform. If you've got a small uh, drone, then one of the benefits of FIDAR is it's low size, weight, and power. So you can fit it onto a smaller platform that you won't necessarily be able to put a, an effective size radar array. Um, so in that case, it's something that you can put in instead of a radar. Uh, for so take for example the Australian Maritime Safety Agency, they've got Challenger six hundred four aircraft, so the you know, twin jet aircraft that they do search and rescue operations. They have a whopping great big maritime radar and a vidar system, because vidar can pick up some of the targets that radar can't, and vidar picks up targets a lot quicker than a radar. So as they're flying towards a say a person in the water. The radar will pick that up once it gets quite close to the platform, but the speed and the altitude they fly at means that by the time that that is processed and comes up on their map, that person's long gone behind them. So the VIDAR system they use to make that detection, and then they provide, so we provide them with the location and the thumbnail image of that person in the water within a second, so that it's, it's real time, it's there, you fly across, they detect it, it's there right in front of you. You can then have a look at what it is and carry out, from their case, drop survival equipment, um, waiting for a helicopter to come and extract. So, um, yeah, it's kind of, if you've got the budget, then you can go for a radar and a VIDAR, and it will give you that ability to do your, do your radar detections, but then also the stuff that radar will miss, VIDAR will pick up. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a lower budget, then you can put the VIDAR system on, which will make those detections uh, that the VIDAR can do, but it will also, VIDAR will also pick up the stuff that radar sees as well. So it, it depends on how you want to operate and, and what you want to do. But yeah, I'd say in a lot of cases, the two can work together. But in some cases, then VIDAR would be better to put in above a radar. Hmm. If, if, if you can. I guess this is all part of what you do is like understand user requirements and then advise on the best solution for, for the end client. Um, yeah. So 
in, in your experience, because all of this technology, I mean, especially to me, um, is absolutely fascinating. And is this the sort of technology that people are searching for and coming to you? Or are you having to then go out and find customers for, for these products? Um, it varies. It's, it's been changing over time. So initially, when I started working with Vidar, it was something that you had to go out and find people, tell people. So you looked at the kind of uh, your ideal end users and you'd go to them and explain what it is and that caught their interest. As time has gone on and more systems have been deployed, then and more press goes out about it, then you find people come to you and say, I've heard about this. What is it? Can I have more information? And then they start looking at how they can move that forward. So yeah, because it was a new product, it was something that was a lot of hard work going around talking to anyone and everyone you could. But now, yeah, there's I, pr- I reckon probably 50% of the, the stuff I'm doing at the moment is coming from people who have come to me rather than me going to them, which is good. And, you know, eventually the whole idea is that you can move the product to a point where it's well-known um, like radar many, many, many years ago was an acronym that was put there and then it became part of everyday speak. And now people say, oh, you know, you're flying flying below the radar and that's part of everyday speak. And we want to move to the point where people just will say, oh, well, we need VIDAR and just understand that VIDAR is the thing that they would want to put on there. Um, and there's no point trying to fly below Vidar because we'll find you anyway. So it's um, <laughs> you know it's 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 trying to get the name of the technology into everyday language. Then then once that kind of moves forward into that space, then you find that you have much more of a customer pull than you pushing towards the customer. Yeah, and what the you know apart from what you've sort of spoken about so far, like what are the main pulls? Like what. What are the trigger points for somebody actually contacting you and saying, right, let's have a conversation about this now? I find that a lot of the time it's people who struggle with the operations that they're trying to do. So um, if you take, for example, the, the RNLI in the UK, they do a lot of work. Well, the, all their work they do at the moment and all the times they do rescues, they go out on their boats. They haven't got anything that flies above unless they call the Coast Guard in to assist. They've got, they have no eyes on above looking down. So. They started a program uh, 18 months ago called um, uh, Search and Rescue in the Third Dimension. So looking at how they get above the water to get a better area to look at. And so the discussion started with them based on there was a, they realized they had a problem with what they were doing and that there was a way it could be helped. Um, I've had in the last couple of weeks contact with a European Navy who carries out search and rescue missions for that country they have an enormous search and rescue area so for them they need to be able to fly 300 miles off their coast to rescue somebody and then fly 300 miles back again that gives them 15 minutes when they get there to be able to find and rescue somebody so unless they know exactly where that person is they struggle and with the equipment they have they do they struggle they don't always manage to get out there and rescue in time so they they realized they had a problem. They'd heard about VIDAR through stuff that I put out on LinkedIn. And um, from that, they then contacted me and said, the problem I have is this. And I actually met them face-to-face at the Paris Air Show last week. And they said, look, 
here's what here's the problem we have what can you do and I said well this is how Vido works this is what you would do with it and they walked away big smiles and said you've got to come over and speak to our chief of staff so you know for me that was a, a win trying to get into that level yeah starting those conversations find, yeah trying to find the right level within the customers is always the hardest bit especially in the militaries where you're trying to get because a number of countries like this one their search and rescue is done by the military so you need to get in at the top to then for them to say down to the requirements people we want this but you need the guys who are operating to say well we want this so that comes up from the bottom so when it gets to the person who's got to write the requirements they go aha the seniors want it the operators want it this is something we need to put in where sometimes you get the operator saying we want it gets the person writing the requirements you go well there's no push from above so therefore let's cut cost and not put certain things in so it's it's engaging both ends of the, the chain at the customers again an important way of doing it and I'm presuming you have to have the same approach um, to the uh, same approach to managing all of the different expectations within the um, buying chain as you do from a marketing point of view with industries. You've got to customise your message depending on who it is you're speaking to, haven't you? Yeah. So every every Coast Guard operates slightly differently. Every Navy operates slightly differently. So you, it's having those initial conversations to understand how they operate and get them to tell you what their problems are that you can then formulate. So rather than rocking up with, you know, here's a generic data sheet, I tend to have the conversation with them and say, what is it? They say, well, can you just send me some information? So then you have to rapidly write the right information if you haven't got one that fits what they do, Hmm. pull that together and then send it to them rather than just saying, oh, generic document number one, off you go, that's dealt with them. Because if you do that, they turn around and go, doesn't quite fit what we want to do you don't really understand our problem space let's move on yeah and these are busy busy people and in one way this interview follows quite nicely on from uh, uh from a couple of interviews ago where we're just talking about you know really highlighting the importance of understanding the unique problem of your own clients and not everybody talks about their problem in the same way not everybody experiences the problem in the same way uh, and not everybody from different industries has that as well so um really great advice there and you, so you mentioned the paris air show like how much of what it is that you're doing involves you know sort of going to trade shows and conferences and events and things yeah, quite a lot um so most of the major air shows I, i'm at uh or defense shows and so with sentient last week i was at the paris air show and one of the other um uh, the business development director michael simon olsen he was over there as well uh but he flew in late to the paris air show because he was in vancouver in canada at the world maritime um search and rescue conference that was on over there uh having been doing a tour of the states that he had to do as well um then yeah we presented at conferences in australia earlier in the year we've done ones last year in rome and portsmouth uh and yeah various others so it's yeah it's it's a lot of going around to those kind of events it's useful like going to the paris air show for me was useful because there are it's where a lot of the people who you're trying to speak to all congregate. So I think in the three days I was there, I had 17 meetings to go around and speak to people. And when I left, I thought there was still a few more that I wanted to go and see, but just trying to get everyone's diaries to line up at those kind of things is very difficult. And yeah. you know, it's interesting where, you know, I 
in talking to the Royal Navy, I ended up meeting uh, one of the guys from the Royal Navy at the air show in Paris because it was easier than meeting him in Portsmouth because you know, if he's at his office, diaries fill up at an air show. He's, you, know, you can try to say, well, I'm here, I'm here, let's link. And um, yeah, so my colleague Simon, he's currently in the Netherlands and Belgium doing some presentations over there. And uh, yeah, so we're... <clears throat> There's a, a small team and between us, we're all over the world talking to anyone and everyone. Uh, and if we can't get to them, then you know, sitting with a computer screen and a camera and talking them through that is another way of doing it. But it's, um, yeah, it's, it's exciting stuff and it's an interesting way of doing it. And yeah, exactly what you're saying highlights the real importance of doing that pre-planning before you go to trade shows and something that I talk to people about a lot, which is, you know, do that pre-planning, get those important meetings scheduled in your diary um, because trade shows are such an effective way of meeting lots of different people from all around the world or even all around the country in one place at one point um, and such an incredible resource. Now, I know that we're, we're running out of time uh, now, um, so yes. I'm keen to, to wrap this up and I'm really hoping that my uh, editing skills are up to the task uh, because I've got next door that are next door that are um, drilling through the walls right now and uh, a dog that's uh, decided to come and invade the room as well midway through so I'm hoping that I can <laughs> recover all of this oh what a pain anyway do you have any kind of parting uh, words of advice or words of wisdom for our listeners that are in a similar situation to you where they're selling um, high value um, equipment and technology uh, to buyers where the sales cycle is a long time long period yeah I think I mean for me the key things are if you believe in the product then you'll get that message across to people um, if you don't believe in it then you'll struggle to sell it uh, if you uh, are aware, so make yourself aware of what the customer cycles are beforehand. So don't go in and rushing in saying, brilliant, the guy rang me up and said I want something and expect them to just issue a purchase order. You've got to understand what their cycles are. And you also need to understand what it is the customer wants uh, and what the customer problem is and how you can help solve that. Because if you go in saying, I've got this, you're going to buy it. They won't. Yeah. You've got to go in with the right mindset. Brilliant. That's great advice um, for lots of people listening. Thank you so much for uh, coming onto this podcast and sharing uh, your words of wisdom and also uh, explaining a little bit more about Vidar because it's one of those that, like when I heard about it, I was like, oh, why does nobody know about this? I think there's so many things out there um, that so many of us, myself included, that just don't know exist, but they're making such a significant impact in the way that we do things, you know, saving lives, making big changes. Um, so uh, I'm hoping that with this podcast, I can share a little bit more about the technology that is out there and available um, and just make people more aware whilst also sharing tips and advice at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, thank you. It's been brilliant. And, uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully it's out there. If anyone wants more information, then, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, that, that was my next question. Well, well, my final question, which is, you know, if somebody wants to contact you uh, about the technology or to find out more, what's the best way of doing it? So I will include a link to your website and your LinkedIn profile as well in the show notes on my website, which is charliewyman.com forward slash podcast. Um, is there any uh, any other means of communication that you want people to follow or just LinkedIn and your website? I'd go through, go through LinkedIn on that one and um, yeah, I'll, I'll follow up on that. Splendid. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks very much. 
When you're working on exciting projects in tech or trying to change the world, it's hard to focus on marketing and it might not seem like a big priority for you right now. Talking about what you're working on and the driving force behind why you're doing it will help you raise your profile in your industry and keep your audience up to date and interested. My goal for this podcast is to share the amazing things that businesses and individuals are working on that will shape the world of tomorrow. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform and share it with the others that you think would benefit. If you liked it loads, then feel free to leave me a review. All the show notes and any links mentioned in today's episode will be available on my website. That's charliewyman.com forward slash podcast. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Ciao for now. Bye.